0: Now, I've come to the conclusion that if you really pay attention to a lot of the fairy tales that we tell our children, we probably shouldn't. Right? I mean, they're not called Grimm's Fairy Tales just because that was the name of a person that wrote them. They seem really grim. And, uh, you know, you you read some of these stories and, and you think, man, I probably shouldn't be telling these stories to my children. I think that sometimes when I, when I read through some of the Bible stories that we tell our children as well, you know, we try to clean them up a little bit for Sunday school, but the truth of the matter is I'm not sure if sometimes we should be telling our kids these stories because they are difficult to grasp and they are difficult to explain and they start introducing ideas that are real but are difficult. And we have one of those stories in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. And we, we don't tell this story a lot to our children and maybe there's a good reason for that. But in, the, in the, those chapters of 1 Samuel, David is on the run. On the run from Saul, Saul is angry with David because David has become more popular than Saul is, and he tries to kill David and then he sends his army against him and David and a few hundred guys are being chased all over the countryside, trying to evade Saul and his army and they get very desperate they 're hungry they 're tired, they have nothing to eat, they have nothing to drink, they have no way to defend themselves. And David ends up, he gets an idea, I'm going to go to the village of Nob and I'm going to visit the priest, Ahimelech, there. And see if he's got anything he can give us. He's been friendly to us in the past. And so David arrives at the, at the place of worship and he goes in and he has this conversation with Ahimelech. And ultimately, Ahimelech gives him the bread that would be normally sacrificed because uh, the men are desperate. And he gives David the bread. David takes the sword of Goliath and he goes and feeds his men. And as he leaves, there's a guy standing outside of the city named Doeg. He's an Edomite. He's the chief shepherd of Saul. David doesn't say anything to him. He knows him. But he's in such a hurry, he goes on. Eventually, Saul... Gets his troops together and he says, How come nobody is finding David? How come no one is getting him? Are you guys betraying me? And Doeg raises his hand and says, I've seen David. And Saul says, Where'd you see him? And he tells him the whole story. And David is furious with Ahimelech the priest. And he says to his soldiers, You guys go kill him. And they're like, I'm not killing a priest. We do have some code of conduct here, right? Even the mafia doesn't kill the priests, right? <laughs> but Doeg says, I'll do it. I, I, What do I care? I don't care. So he goes, but he not only kills Ahimelech, he kills 85, all the 85 priests that served with him. Slaughter. And he comes back and he says, this all, it's all taken care of. And when word gets back to David about what has happened, he writes Psalm 52. The beginning of Psalm 52, the introduction says for the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Doeg the Edomite said to Saul, David has gone to see Ahimelech. And it starts this chain of events that leads to the death of these innocent priests. And David writes this psalm out of that. It is an act of of injustice. It's an act of evil, violence. And David is so furious and so consumed by the pain of it that he pens this psalm. And we understand the feelings of anger and frustration about injustice in our world too. What we ought to do is read any kind of news, and you see story over and over again of innocent people being taken advantage of, children being taken advantage of, the poor being taken advantage of, people who have no recourse to the, for themselves to protect themselves, taken advantage of. We read stories of, of children, innocent children hit by stray gunfire and gang wars, terrorists, setting off bombs in villages in the, in, where people are just simply trying to go to market to feed their family. People coming out of worship. Refugees who've, been, who've had to run from their homes because all the people who have power are fighting for their land. We see it often in our court system. And we like to think, always does everything the right way, and yet time and time again, we feel frustrated By the things that happen. And in the midst of all of that struggle. The most natural response is to want to strike back. I guarantee you David's first response to hearing the story of what has happened is to say, guys, gather up your swords. We're going to go find Doeg." But I think one of the reasons David writes this psalm is because he realizes, at least in that moment, it's not the right thing to do. He's acting out of anger, out of frustration. He's acting out of a spirit of vengeance. And it's the most natural thing in the world because we all feel that. And we may not want to go take someone's life, but we definitely want vengeance sometimes. And David says to us, in the midst of all these feelings and all this struggle, he says to us what we probably would expect him to say, what we expect the scriptures to say, what you might expect me to say, and that is, trust God. Trust God. Now, I think that one of the struggles we have with trusting God is that we have this sense that we believe that trusting God means that we ignore evil. That we ignore injustice. That we act as if it doesn't matter what is happening in the world. And that is not what David is telling us. In fact, these first four verses of the psalm are David saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with injustice and evil. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You're in disgrace in the eyes of God. You practice deceit. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good. Falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Which is another way of saying, you liar. David is not denying the reality or the power of evil. Of injustice. He is Facing it head on. And sometimes we think trusting God means we live in denial. And sometimes it's easier to live in denial. I'm just not going to watch the news. It's too depressing. It's too upsetting. I'm not going to pay attention to the needs of people around me. It's too much. It hurts too much. It's too much of a struggle. It's too much pain. I don't want to know about it. Don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to know what's going on in the world because if I really know about it, it's going to break my heart, it's going to crush my spirit, and I can't take it. And we sometimes think that that is the easiest way to trust God is to just ignore things. But that's not what David is saying. We call evil and injustice what it is. It ought to upset us. It ought to make our hearts ache. It ought to bring tears to our eyes. It does, God. And, and, and addressing injustice and evil is not denial as, as tempting as that may be to us. It is rather trusting that God is greater than the evil and the injustice. When Jesus comes to this earth, he does not ignore evil and pain and injustice. He steps right into the middle of it. So much so that it eventually leads him to the cross. But the solution and the way that Jesus exhibits his trust for God is not to ignore things or to deny things. It's to acknowledge them so much that he steps right into the middle of things. Because he believes God is greater than evil. When I was young, I used to think that the opposite of God was, the opposite of Satan was God. It's like they were, they were you know, the, the black and the white, the, the good and the bad, and, and they were just equal powers to each other. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you want to say the opposite, what the op- wonder what the opposite of Satan is, you would have to say it's angels. It's not God. It's not as if Satan is a legitimate rival to God that we have to worry about maybe he might be more powerful than God. The scriptures make it very clear to us, God is greater, more powerful than anything. And of course, that then begs the question, so why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Why does he let it continue? Why do we? Why is it still a struggle? Why does he put an end to it? And the only answer that I can come up with for that is that, well, number one, God is wiser than we are, but because... It comes back to God's desire for a real, true, loving relationship with his creatures. And you can't have a genuine relationship unless there is the possibility of rejecting that relationship. No one can make you love someone. They can make us act like we love someone. But no one can truly make you love someone. There is no relationship in the world that is genuinely rooted in love that happens because we are forced to do it. It's always a choice. And we have the choice to to love and we have the choice to not love. That's what makes the relationship so vital and so real. It's not a real relationship if we can't choose to reject it. That's what makes love so risky. That's what makes us so hesitant to love so often because we're afraid of being rejected. But God wants relationship with us so deeply that he is willing to risk us misunderstanding him. He's willing to risk us rejecting him because he wants us have a relationship that is rooted in love. And that means that he doesn't always solve every problem that we face in this world. Now let's be honest. When we think about God intervening in the problems of the world, we have a tendency to want God to intervene in the problems of the world that bother us. And when we don't think about some of the problems in the world, we don't really have any inclination toward God doing anything about it. It typically only becomes important to us and only bothers us that God isn't doing something when it has some bearing on us. Either because it directly affects us or because it makes us feel upset or bad about what's happening. A few years ago, I was reading an article about the... uh, the United States relationship with Cuba. And you know back in the in the late 50s when when Fidel Castro took over the nation of Cuba, it became the the leadership of our nation felt like we needed to do something about that and we needed to try to overthrow his government because it was and and the reasoning was because it was bad for the people. The people were now in distress, but the reality was the people of Cuba, many of them, were in distress under the leadership of Bautista as well. The difference was Batista was friendly to us. And Batista allowed us to, to use the natural resources that Cuba had and have a relationship, and Castro didn't. And the truth is, for a lot of a lot of people, the plight of the people of Cuba only bothered us when we no longer had the ability to have the kind of relationship with Cuba that we wanted. And the truth is, that happens to a lot of us about a lot of situations and a lot of circumstances. And we feel that way about God interacting in the world and doing something about what's happening in the world. But it eventually comes back to do we believe that God knows more about what he's doing than we do? And the relationship that God wants with us may well lead to pain and heartache and rejection and difficulties. And while we don't understand it, it's a part of trusting God. Now, the problem with with our doubts about God... And our concerns about God not working the way we want him to is that it causes us to doubt God's promises and God's character and his nature and his ability to step in and to be greater than evil. And when that happens, we have a tendency to say, well, then let's just attack evil the way everybody else does. The end justifies the means. It seems to me that in a lot of history... The people who have who have perpetuated injustice started out trying to address a different injustice. And they are so wrapped up in addressing this injustice that they really didn't realize that they were now creating a different kind of injustice. And we have a tendency, as David says here in verse six, verses 6 and 7, that we... We get so wrapped up in what we want to do and how we want to do it. That we actually say, you know what? It works to be wealthy and to have power and to use it for our own ends. So let's do it. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. God doesn't seem to care. God seems to be letting things go. Maybe we just need to do things the way everybody else does them. And David says, trust God. I'm intrigued by verse 8. David, after he talks about how all the things that have happened, all the evil and injustice has happened, David then says, I'm like an olive tree. An interesting way thing for David to say. I'm like an olive tree. And perhaps maybe other than in the Lord of the Rings, trees are pretty passive. Right? I mean, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or read the books, you know, the trees are active. They talk, they move, they do things. But I have not had any trees in my yard do that. They just sort of sit there, right? And and they tend to not act. They tend to be acted upon. And when they're little, you water them and you, you put uh, fertilizer in them and you do things to help them grow and you trim them and you prune them. But they pretty much are passive. And David is, in essence, saying... I am passive about this, and we might interpret that as I'm not. I have no role to play. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he means I'm not going to be vengeful. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to use the same tactics against this enemy and this person who's created this situation as he, this person does. I'm going to do something different. Because here's the thing about olive trees. He could have chosen any trees. He could have just said, I'm like a tree. He says that in other places. We see that in Psalm 1. Blessed are those who are like a tree planted by streams of water. He says, I'm an olive tree. And that's significant. Because olive trees are vital to the economic and spiritual and and material health of Israel. Olives are not just food. They are that. But they also press them. And the oil is vital to anointing. The oil is vital to cooking. The oil is vital to, to the, the uh, lamps burning in the tabernacle, in the temple. Oil is vital to the, all of the culture of Israel. It is a positive thing. And I think David is saying, my strategy, my task, my calling, how I trust God is to do whatever I can to be constructive. And to have a constructive, positive presence in the midst of all of this injustice and evil of our world. I could not help but think of that as I stood here and saw all these people lined up. This group of people standing here is saying... I want to do something constructive in the midst of injustice and pain that a whole lot of children are experiencing. I want to be a presence for good. I want to be a presence for Jesus. I want to do something positive in this world and among children that have such great needs have been treated so poorly. The hard part about that is that, you know, an olive tree can only produce so much oil. And you think, what's one olive tree to all of the people that live in Israel? And, and what's one week for all the needs and the burdens that these 52 children have? You wonder, does one week make a difference when it's up against 51 other weeks? And all I can say is, through the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, yes. Yes. And I'm convinced that things like Royal Family Kids Camp And giving bags of food to people whose cupboards are bare. And paying a bill for someone who is wrestling to make ends meet. And taking a meal to someone who is going through a crisis. And taking a few moments to pray for someone who is struggling. All of these things in and of themselves don't seem earth shattering. But in the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit, they make a difference. Because God is greater than evil and pain and injustice. See, we want to do earth-shattering things. You know, we, our culture tells us what we do is only significant if, if it's something that changes the whole world in one moment. Our culture tells us it's only significant if you have a lot of wealth and a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of pain, fame. It's only important if it's big. But the gospel keeps telling us that it's important most of the time when it's small. Remember, Jesus says, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The smallest of seeds planted in the ground and grows. And trusting God means that we believe whatever we do for the kingdom is bigger than us. And it's because we trust God that we take these leaps, these steps of faith to get involved, to do what we can to make a difference in a world of pain and heartache and injustice and evil. Are we going to end it? Are we going to solve every problem? No. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to be olive trees, to produce good fruit. To be constructive, to be positive, to do whatever we do in the moment where we are as God leads us to. And we may get to the end of our day and think, I don't know if I did anything productive or not. But that's not really the the point. The point is, did I trust God enough to do something And we do it because we believe God is who he says he is and God does what he promises to do. And often the little things that we do will probably cause us a certain amount of pain. I mean, everybody standing up here that's going to camp this week, next Sunday when we gather again, I guarantee you they're going to look a lot more tired than they do today. Mentally, emotionally, physically, probably spiritually. Because they are investing themselves. And it's hard. It's a lot of work. And it's a lot of struggle. And you wonder if you're accomplishing anything. But we do it because we believe that God is in it. And it costs something to address injustice and evil and pain. But isn't that exactly what Jesus shows us? God's most profound, ultimate act against evil is the cross. It's the cross. It's death. And out of death comes life. The day is coming when God is going to set everything right. And that's what David says. David says in verse 1, Don't you realize, Doeg, that God's justice prevails? Don't you realize... People, we keep gathering for worship. We keep coming together. We keep singing songs of joy in the midst of pain. We keep singing songs of grace in the midst of difficulty. We keep singing songs of praise and adoration, even with the questions in our minds, because we believe that the day is coming when God is going to set everything right. But we live between the now and the not yet. Between the now and the not yet, we trust. We trust that the time spent with a child is worth it. We trust that loving people who are hard to love is worth it. We trust translating the scriptures into someone's language is worth it. We trust taking a meal is worth it. We trust all of these things, all of these acts of grace and kindness and mercy are worth it. The risk, the effort, the struggle is worth it. Because God is bigger. And greater. And we can trust Him. I obviously don't know this morning what you might be wrestling with. What what struggle in your life, what struggle in somebody else's life, what you're just wrestling with in the world at large. But I do want all of us to know and to hear David's words. God, we can trust you because you are good. And the measure of our faith is not that we trust that God is good, as important as that is. But the real measure of our faith is that when life is bad, we still trust that God is good. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you do, for what you've promised. We lament the pain and the heartache and the struggle of this world. But today we want to declare that we trust you. And we want to be agents of healing and grace and mercy in this broken world. Give us the ability to trust you enough to be olive trees. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.